Welcome to Word Journeys, a podcast about etymology and the surprising stories behind the origins of English words. This is Dallas, coming to you from Philadelphia. Our episode today is about the Greek poet Homer, the name given to the author or authors of the ancient Greek epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey. There are many English words derived from Greek, but in particular, there are a few English words that come more or less directly from characters or beings in Homer, and those are the words we'll explore today. I sat down with Bill Beck, a Homer scholar, and, more relevant for listeners of this podcast, the person behind the Twitter handle, at Greek Etymology, which provides daily etymologies of modern Greek words. We each discuss three Homeric English words. So without further ado, here's our discussion. So, Bill, what's your first selection? So my word is Hector, which I thought was both uh, at once super obvious and also really surprising in some ways. So Hector, the English verb meaning bully, goes back to the ancient Greek name Hector, um, i.e. the Trojan prince that's prominent in the Iliad. And so the obvious part of this is that the English word comes directly from the Greek Hector, first attested in the Iliad. But the surprising bit is that if you've read the Iliad and you've seen how Hector is portrayed there, you might not expect, given Homer's sympathetic portrayal of Hector, that he would become synonymous in English with bullying speech mm -hmm. or, you know, sort of um, an annoying, uh, bullying person. Um, so in Greek, the name Hector is an agent noun formed from the verb echo, which means to hold. Um, so etymologically speaking, he's the holder of Ilios. And even um, it seems that Homer himself knew this etymology and... Mm -hmm. Um, in the Cratylus, uh, Plato's Cratylus, Socrates suggests that um, he knew of this etymology as well. Mm -hmm. So this etymology was well known early on, um, but how did it actually get to mean bully? Um, so this didn't happen until the mid-17th century, when a gang of con artists in London <laughs> named themselves the Hectors after Homer's character. Um, so they were, this was uh, first mentioned in 1652, in a pamphlet with a great title, um, which is A Notable and Pleasant History of the Famous Renowned Knights of the Blade, Commonly Called Hectors. <laughs> and in this pamphlet, they complain, the author complains of their, quote, flim-flams, and describes their manner of life as one that, quote, consists much in cheat and cousinage, gaming, decoying, pimping, whoring, swearing, and drinking, and with the nobler sort, in robbing. Um... And then in the next year, this guy John Cleveland wrote a poem entitled To the Hectors, which addresses the members of the gang as tame professors of the sword. So from the 1660s, it could be applied from the gang generally just to their bullyish activities. <laughs> um, and in naming themselves the Hectors, they seem to have been um, using a classical reference to imitate a previous gang that had a lot of success and was much feared in London, um, with, I think, an even more amusing name, because they were named the Titeretus. Um, so they took their word from the, their, uh, sorry, their name from the first word of Virgil's eclogue, Virgil's oh first gosh. poem, which is in Latin, Titeretu patulae recumbans subtegne fagi, you titeris relaxing under the shield of a spreading beech tree, um, so this is obviously a learned allusion, not only to Virgil, but also to the etymology of the name Titeris, which comes from Greek, um, and is a name for the, one of the varieties of the half-man, 
half goat creature, more commonly known as satyrs, which are, you know, sort of known for their uh, libido, known for their violence, known for their unruliness. So the titiratus in early uh, 17th century London were calling attention both to their classical education and also their uh, kind of hooliganism. And so the hectors seem to have been modeling themselves off of uh, them. So let me get this straight, because that was a bit complex. So there was a society in London yep. called the Titeratus mm-hmm. yep. from Titerus, yep. which is a very a, an obscure to uh, first classical yeah, allusion. Yeah, to Latin, right. Um, and then there was an imitation society <laughs> right. that called themselves the Hectors. Right. And maybe a, more, a bit more of an obvious uh, Right, and I, there was an author, I think one of these authors that I mentioned um, recalls being in a pub in London when he saw them swearing themselves in as the Hectors. <laughs> there's an eyewitness account of the formation of this group. So we might have... It's incredible. We can get down to the day, the sort of etymological origin of this of this word's influence on it. It's English. a rare thing when you yeah. can pinpoint it with that accuracy. <laughs> yeah. Poor Hector, too. His reputation seems to have been besmirched a bit. Yeah. By, that's, it's a, it was one society. A little bit surprising, but then just recently I've been looking at... Um, ancient commentaries on the Iliad and seeing that in late antiquity they really um, take a nationalistic reading of the Iliad and rail against Hector and represent him as a sort of savage barbarian Mm. with no morals. So this also might be, I mean, those commentaries were very influential in the Greek world and you can imagine that maybe they could have also influenced uh, Hector's reading. So I think we we tend to read Hector with a kind of more... uh, more liberated, I think, from these um, right. ideas. Interesting. So my word is siren. I didn't think it would be that interesting, I have to admit, when I started. But it led me down a lot of kind of fun rabbit holes. So a siren um, in Homer was a type of monster, essentially. It was like a bird-like creature with an enchanting voice, uh, women, that caused ships to wreck and caused sailors to drown. The idea being they would sing so sweetly, they would lure men from their ships who would jump overboard and try to swim to them and drown, leading them to their deaths. I don't think it's 100% known what the etymology of siren is. Um, the word appears in Homer. It's perhaps connected to a Greek word, sera, which means a rope or a cord, and perhaps also to aero, which means to tie or to fasten. So you can sort of imagine it as one who binds or entangles through song. There's also the, the original story of the sirens in Homer has a binding motif. They did seem to be very mysterious. Um, not, In fact, there was much disagreement about how many there were or what their names are or what they looked like. In art, they were often depicted, I guess, generally as having bird bodies and women's faces. Um, Women have been compared to sirens pejoratively throughout history. Um, creatures that are beautiful but corrupting, especially corrupting of morals, uh, leading men to their deaths. Um, and even in ancient Greek, in Euripides, for instance, it was metaphorically used to refer to a deceitful woman. So the word siren was used in Greek and in Latin throughout classical antiquity. Um, St. Jerome in the Vulgate actually used the word sirene to translate a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word was tanin, which meant jackals, as part of a prophecy against Babylon. Uh, quote, 
Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds, jackals, her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand and her days will not be prolonged in Isaiah. Jackals here is translated as Sirene, probably because they referred to, they connoted worldly temptation um, and referred to monsters or strange beings generally. As a side note, this Hebrew word tanin is really interesting. Um, it seems to be sort of a catch-all monster word. It refers probably to a sea monster, but can also refer to whales or serpents, or sometimes it's translated as dragons. So it's it's one of these words that's about something that doesn't really exist or seems very monstrous mm -hmm. and... Um, chimerical. Chimerical, yeah. that's a good word. Um, so anyway, St. Jerome decided to translate some instances of that as sirene, as the sirens. In the Middle Ages, sirens kind of meant the same thing that they meant in antiquity, um, but they were always really strongly associated with the sea and the water in all of these stories. Um, the first appearance of siren in English comes from 1366, where they were saying, in English, what we call mermaids, in France, they call sirens. Mermaid in English appeared for the first time in 1350. So the two seem to have basically been synonyms, um, although mermaid, as today, refers to sort of a half-woman, half-fish, whereas a siren maybe had more of a bird angle, but I think the important thing is they are both associated with the water, and this will become important. Um, by the early 17th century, it could figuratively refer in English to a creature which sings sweetly or charms like the siren. Today, we have a, a siren meaning a different thing. It's a very loud noise, a machine that makes a very loud noise. And I'll go into this a bit. So the siren was invented in the late 18th century by Scottish philosopher John Robson. It operated by opening and closing a pneumatic tube for an organ. So initially it was meant to be used in a musical instrument. Uh, there was an inventor named Baron Charles Cagnard de la Torre. He improved the design uh, by 1819. Each end of the tube now had a rotating disc, and one end would stay stationary, and the other one would rotate, and it would be perforated. And whenever the tube got close, it would make a tone or a noise. Um, so just sort of a better version. And he, this guy, Baron Charles Cagnard de la Torre, is the one who named this invention the siren. Very clever. And he said, If one runs water through the siren instead of air, it still produces sound, even though it is fully immersed in this fluid, and the same number of shocks produce the same number of audible vibrations as in air. It is because of this property of making sound in water that I thought I could give it the name by which it is designated. So it's the underwaterness of the, si of the sound, the fact that the siren works underwater and it produces a tone. So it led him to connect it to the sirens it's kind of, of Homer in a brief mythology. If it's referring to the drowning of the sailors, or I guess how they drown themselves in the sea. Right, they... that's a good point. Yeah, something that should have been beautiful music. Although, I guess throughout history, the sirens, there's been, they are morbid and dangerous, and they also sound really nice. Right, right, and so right. They sort of embody this duality. Um, so the word siren referring to this instrument was first used in English in 1822, it wasn't until 1879 that this, principle was, that this principle was applied to a larger type of instrument. And for this new instrument, they used it for fog signals, for warnings, 
it wasn't pleasant anymore. It was loud and blaring, but it still kept the name Siren. But that's why today a siren has a meaning which is distinctly different from what it was in the past. A sweet, alluring, and dangerous sound that led to danger now refers to an extremely annoying sound that prevents it. Okay, so the next word I did is um, mentor, as in an experienced or trusted advisor. Um, And the path of mentor in English is similar to that of Hector, somewhat, um, in that they're both from Homeric Greek, but they come into English only thanks to an impetus from the early modern period. So mentor is from ancient Greek mentor, um, the name of a character. And this is um, mentor, the word, is an agent noun from a Proto-Indo-European root, meaning something like mind or thought. Um, like mental. Like mental. And it's not totally surprising seeing that, you know, a Proto-Indo-European root meaning mind would come to mean to have the meaning in English that mentor has today. Um, and mentor in Greek, yeah, would have meant something like thoughtful or mindful. Um, so mentor first appears in the Odyssey. Uh, he is Odysseus's tr- trusted companion in Ithaca, and he's one of the guides for Telemachus's journey when he goes to get news of his father. And from that point forward, Mentor is the preferred disguise that Athena takes on whenever she wants to communicate with Telemachus. Uh, But it's not actually until the mid-18th century that Mentor took on a new meaning as a common noun that was somewhat disassociated from the character that it was based on. And this is primarily due to a uh, Frenchman uh, in his uh, treatise, The Adventures of Telemachus, which was first published in 1699. And in this, he expanded on Odysseus's account of Telemachus's travels, taking Mentor as the hero and mouthpiece for his critique of Louis XIV. Wow. So this novel was an, instantane- an instant hit. It was a bestseller in France, and it was tra- translated into every European language, including uh, Latin. Uh, there was a Latin verse translation published in 1743, and it appeared in English within the year of its publication. And it also spawned... Um, the plot of Mozart's Idomeneo. And uh, due to the wide influence of uh, this novel, Mentor's name became proverbial shorthand for a guide or an advisor. Mm -hmm. And so you can see this in a letter dated to March 8th, 1750, Lord Chesterfield uh, wrote to a friend of what he called, quote, the friendly care and assistance of your mentor. And so Mm -hmm. from then on, it takes off as just a common word to describe any kind of advisor that you have. That's interesting because reading the Odyssey today, mentor shows up. And because we know the word, there's automatically a lot of importance on the character. But it seems like this Frenchman sort of elevated mentor from... Yeah, exactly. Maybe a relative obscurity. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't appear that often. And then there's also what we forget about because of the etymology of, because of the English word, is that um, Telemachus actually had two companions, and Odysseus had two um, sort of advisors that Athena appeared as, and the other was mentees, which comes from Mm. the same root. Mm. But of course, mentees did not win out, mentors (laughs) won out in English. Well, I have another character name. Uh, lifted out from relative obscurity that I'll go into next. Uh, My word this time is pander. It's both a noun and a verb, but most often today it's used as a verb to mean to provide gratification for others' desires. And pander has its start with a character from Greek mythology, a minor one, named Pandarus. Pandarus was part of the Trojan army. He appears in the Iliad, 
Pandarus has his big moment in book four of the Iliad, and maybe, Bill, you can help me out setting up some context. Yeah, sure. So he, he becomes important in a scene when the um, Greek and Trojan warriors decide to have a truce in order to let Paris and Menelaus, the two suitors of Helen, duke it out um, for for the, the spoils of war, right. uh, including Helen. Okay. So then, yeah, and then Athena decides to intervene. She tricks Pandarus, uh, persuades him to shoot. He shoots at Menelaus, and this sabotages the truce and causes the Greeks and Trojans to start fighting again. And that's it for him, really, in the Iliad. Uh, although it was important that he was an intermediary in this story. So after the Iliad... You know, the story of the Trojan War, and, and in particular this final siege of Troy, continued to fascinate authors and was retold in the classical period in many different ways and throughout the Middle Ages. And Pandarus appears as a character in some of these works, but he's never more than a common soldier. The first step toward his evolution came with a 12th century Troy story called Le Roman de Troy by Benoit de Saint-Maur, which introduced the story of Troilus and Cressida. These figures aren't really important in Greek mythology, but they become the subject of uh, a tale that's told many times. And the Cliff's Notes version is that Troilus is a young son of Priam. The Trojan, he's a Trojan prince. He falls in love with Cressida, who's the daughter of Calchas, a Trojan who is defected to the Greeks. And Troilus and Cressida get a love story. They get together somehow, but she's either captured or, in some versions, sent to her father in a hostage exchange where she becomes close with Diomedes, and this causes Troilus to reject her and get angry. Different versions have different things, but that's the, the central theme. So Italian poet Giovanni Boccaccio drew on this earlier version in a poem called Il Filostrato, probably written in the mid-14th century. And he's the one that really reshaped Pandarus's trajectory. So there's a character, Pandaro, who's a friend of Troilus. Um, Pandaro happens to be Cressida's cousin, and because he knows both of them, he's a logical go-between and sets them up, so to speak. Boccaccio's poem then inspired Geoffrey Chaucer to write one of his own version, um, called Troilus and Cressida, written in the late 14th century. And in this version, he makes Pandarus Cressida's uncle. So Pandarus is older, and he's more skilled in speech, and nearly a quarter of the work is made up of Pandarus's speeches. And then Shakespeare comes along. He writes a tragedy called Troilus and Cressida in 1602. And Shakespeare takes Pandarus and turns him into a full-on pervert. <laughs> Pandarus is gross, he's lewd, but still, as in all these versions, he's an important go-between in the courtship of Troilus and Cressida. Um, also, Pandarus has syphilis and a number of venereal diseases. A callback to a previous it, Right. <laughs> and at the end of the play, he says that he hopes the audience will catch some of his diseases as oh he coughs. So, pretty early on, um, the proper name, some version of Pandarus or Pandare, could be a stand-in uh, for a go-between in clandestine love affairs. Um, that's attested from 1450. Shakespeare's creation helped cement this, and it seemed to generalize it as well. So we have a common noun, pander, by 1603, which could mean a person who assists the immoral urges or evil designs of others. And today, the word is more often used as a verb, meaning to minister to the gratification of another's desire. Uh, the first use of this is actually in Hamlet, also Shakespeare, 1623. So 
Is there any sense that the his reputation as an oathbreaker, even though he didn't really have that reputation in antiquity, but because mm-hmm. he's his most prominent um, role in literature as is as a breaker of oaths, mm-hmm. does that get translated into his more negative portrayal? I guess it's only really until Shakespeare that he's portrayed quite so negatively. Right, and it's. It, that's a good point, and I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. And it seems to sort of follow a logical progression of someone... It seems his being sort of skilled at rhetoric, almost, is what makes him kind of sleazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that's not unrelated to the oath-breaking right. of it. So, for my third word, I looked at an even more minor character, and this is uh, stentor, and with the English word, giving us the English word stentorian, referring to a loud and powerful voice. Um, so, unlike Hector and Mentor, stentorian owes its English usage pretty much entirely to antiquity. Um, stentorian ultimately derives from ancient Greek stentor, the name of one of the Greeks who fought at Troy. And like Hector and Mentor, this name is an agent noun from ancient Greek steno, meaning to moan. Stentor was first mentioned in the Iliad, where he appears only once and briefly, and actually not even as himself. So at the end of Iliad 5, Hera uh, appears in the guise of Stentor to spur on the Greeks, and the narrator says that the goddess stood and shouted in the guise of brave, bronze-voiced Stentor, whose voice has the strength of 50 men. After his brief appearance in the Iliad, Stentor's powerful voice became proverbial, and the adjective Stentorian, Stentorios, came into use. The first recorded use of the adjective is in Aristotle's Politics, where he says that cities can't function if they're too large, reasoning that one could serve as a herald, one could only serve as a herald in such a city if he had (laughs) a Stentorian voice. The adjective stentorian was in continuous use in Greek literature. Um, Aelius Aristides used it in the 2nd century, Procopius used it in the 6th century, and it appears in the 13th century lexicon of Pseudo-Zonaras. It is first attested in English in 1605 when Joshua Sylvester transited a French poem with the title Divine Weeks and Works, which begins with the promise, quote, my stentorian song with warbled echoes of a silver tongue shall brim be heard from India even to Spain and then from thence to the Arctic wane. So I closed off my research with this word with a Google Ngram search where I found that the um, its high in relative frequency in English appeared in 1896. Um, but good news, stentorian has been on the rise since 1997. So like stentor, which existed for a long time, but came into English through French later on. My third word has a similar trajectory, uh, although this word is much more common. Uh, It's python, the snake. So unlike the others, python doesn't come directly from the Iliad or Odyssey, but rather another quote-unquote Homeric work, uh, the Homeric hymn to Apollo. And it referred to a specific monster, a large mythological serpent that was slain by Apollo. The python lived in the earth as a chthonic being uh, near Mount Parnassus, which is near Delphi, uh, where Apollo killed it in a place called Chrysa. And the Homeric hymn to Apollo actually gives its own etymology for the name of the beast. So after Apollo slays the serpent, he gloats over it a bit and then leaves it there to rot in the sun. And the Greek verb meaning to rot is putho or pitho, uh, and so the place where it was slain became known as P- 
Pitho, and Apollo got the title of Pythian, since, quote, it was there that the monster was putrefied then by Helios's penetrant power. So, Python essentially means rot, or at least that's what the author of the Homeric Hymn to Apollo tells us. So, one meaning of Python in English historically is this specific monster. As a bit of an aside, a lot of things associated with Delphi have a pith root. So there are the Pythian Games, which is one of the four major Panhellenic games in ancient Greece. Um, there was an oracle there, and the priestess was known as the Pythia. Um, in her prophesying, it was thought that the Pythia was uh, the host of a sort of divine spirit. Um, and from this meaning, there was actually a historical word in English. It's not used anymore, but it was also Python. But this time it meant a spirit which takes possession of a person, especially with the powers of prophecy. Now, python today in English is synonymous with a species of large snake, and specifically a heavy, non-venomous snake that's found in the tropics that kills their prey by crushing or constricting. And this term comes directly from the Greek serpent. Um, it's, it's technically a genus of snake. But, you know, for a long time, there weren't any English speakers who knew about these types of snakes at all, so how did it get its name? So it all came from one very prolific French zoologist named Francois-Marie Daudin, Dodon had wide-ranging interests in the sciences. Um, part of his interest in animals is alleged to be from the fact that he was paralyzed in his legs from a childhood disease, uh, but could still observe the ground, which led him to choose zoology over, say, physics. <laughs> but in any case, uh, he wrote books on ornithology, on mollusks, on worms, um, but he made his most lasting impression in herpetology, study of reptiles, from ancient Greek, herpo, meaning to creep. Um which is also where we get herpes. <laughs> That's the second time I've referred to a venereal disease in <laughs> the last 10 minutes. Um, Dodon published a Natural History of Reptiles and described over 517 species, which included several new species identifications of his own. He also named nine new genuses, one of which was Python, taken from the Greek beast. There's one fairly obvious omission from the episode that I'll touch on briefly now. And that's the word Odyssey. The Odyssey takes its name from its main character, Odysseus. And there's actually an etymology for Odysseus presented in the Odyssey itself. It was thought to mean hated by gods and men, derived from the ancient Greek verb odousthasthai, meaning to hate. Odyssey came into English through French, first attested in French in 1798, and meaning an account of voyages or adventures. It doesn't appear in English until 1886, in Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped, and I quote, This is a great epic, a great odyssey of yours. If you want to hear more Greek etymology from Bill, you can check out his Twitter handle, at Greek Etymology, for daily updates. You can visit our website at www.wordjourneyspodcast.com to write in with questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends about it and leave a rating and a review on iTunes. This is Dallas Simons. Thanks for listening and see you next time.